a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan with you again. And today we have a return guest with some good updates. Uh, we have Brian Sove, the president of the National Police Federation. And uh, Brian was previously on episode four, so we won't be getting into his whole bio here. Um, but you can go listen to his story and some other uh, ongoing things with the National Police Federation in that episode. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, use of force, some of the current direction from the federal, uh, federal minister to the RCMP uh, around use of force options, and then just some of the subsequent impact on policing. So welcome, Brian. Well, thanks for having us, having me back, Nathan. Um, always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, the topics that you cover are fascinating. So uh, I think uh, I think the audience probably appreciates the, the the breadth and the depth that you go to. Well, I appreciate the time, but uh, I was telling somebody that just recently, actually, I can kind of see general numbers of where people listen, and um, for some reason. Alberta is about half the listeners, and then Nova Scotia is the other half. I don't know why. I have no clue. <laughs> you didn't grow up there? <laughs> no, no. I no. Okay. I, I just get a lot of listeners. There's like a couple hundred a month are from Nova Scotia, and then I mean, I it's funny. I can even see there's like three or four people every month from uh, Tanzania. I don't know if they're just listening by accident, but uh, <laughs> I get people from around the world that kind of listen to this. So it's, it's really cool to see the, uh, the reach you can get on these things. But um, I'm glad to help you guys out. So your message will kind of get out there. And now obviously, things that impact the RCMP definitely do have an impact on municipal police. A lot of things start with you guys and trickle down to the smaller services. So uh, I think this will be a good discussion. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the reasons we've been so, um, uh, I wouldn't say it's actually been so public, but we've been so thorough in this particular issue, uh, you know, because obviously for the, for your listeners who aren't aware, you know, the prime minister issued a new mandate letter to the minister of public safety earlier this year in the May and that may or may not be political, seeing as it was around the anniversary of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests. That mandate letter talked about prohibiting the use of neck restraints or chokeholds, um, as well as eliminating the use of tear gas and uh, rubber bullets in the RCMP. So then it filters down the Minister of Public Safety, then issues a new mandate letter to the commissioner talking about those same three things, um, which I think should be concerning for police in general in Canada, um, um, you know, mainly because obviously from the RCMP's perspective, um, you know, we can divide that into two sections and um, every member of the RCMP uh, on our incident management intervention model or our use of force framework uh, gets trained and is um, the carotid control technique is a use of force on the continuum that they can use when fearing death or grievous bodily harm. So to pull that out of every member's 
use of force framework. And, you know, we're a very diverse police service now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have five foot zero members going into bar fights with those who are six foot two or six foot four. That CCT or carotid control technique is actually a very uh, effective balancing tool mm-hmm. for uh, those that might be uh, mismatched. Not so much as probably impactful for a municipal police service, and I'm not sure if Edmonton, I know Winnipeg uh, doesn't doesn't use the CCT in their use of force framework, maybe because, probably because uh, they are more dense in their population to police officer. You know, you push the red button and there could be five cops there in, in two minutes or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, you know, a member working in Port Chippewan or uh, La Ronge or some of those less popular, less populated places. It's it's uh, backup could be four to six minutes to even a half hour to an hour away. And as you know, you know, four minutes in a fight is a lifetime. Uh, so that's our concern with the carotid control technique because you know, in smaller places, are we going to place a member who's in that fight for their life in a situation where they're going to possibly draw a sidearm? because they feel they have no other option. And now it's a fight for a gun. Well, yeah. Um, and so. And you know what? Um, one of the things, and just going back to one of your earlier points here about it being political, um, I, I would very much be of the opinion that this is all about politics because the, the terminology used by the politicians right from the top is never correct. And this is the same in the... Uh, <clears throat> in the uh, uh, gun debate, uh, you know, assault style, uh, assault style rifles or weapons. That's not even a real term. And it's, it's, it's just comes across as being lazy, but also you're trying to drum up like a certain image in people's heads of what's actually uh, the threat is, what's actually going on out there. Um, calling things chokeholds. Like it's not, two hands around somebody's throat and just choking them, like cutting off their air. There is an actual technique. um, I've seen it applied dozens of times uh, in training. Um, Having done martial arts, I know it's an effective tool. And there's a million studies on it too that say it's effective. It doesn't damage people. But yeah, and like you were just saying, we have a diverse... uh, service you need to teach people a lot of different ways to take care of themselves and to take care of the public so to take away intervention options um or or techniques um it's gonna be a very put people in a very dangerous place and I, yeah and i i, I agree with you uh, yeah it is uh, i mean I'm, i try not to be political but you know we can point that out that mm-hmm. these mandate letters were announced shortly before or shortly after uh, uh, a certain anniversary in May. Um, so, you know, I think, yes, the inaccuracies of the statement is trying to uh, bolster um, support for different political parties and all that great stuff. But, you know, there's no election this year, too. Um, so it could just be, you know, a misunderstanding or a media or a soundbite from a parliamentarian that wants to get get some some traction, which is fine. I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. 
And we've clearly, I mean, we sent our position paper as well as the background videos and the documents to the minister, the prime minister's office and, and such. And it clearly explains to them, hey, chokehold, we don't use that. Neck restraint, we don't use that. Uh, what we do use is a vascular control technique, which is commonly called the carotid control technique. And by the way, here's all the scientific documents uh, and research. One just recently completed this year um, where the RCMP and a number of U.S. law enforcement agencies studied it through uh, in-field application as well as training application. There were almost a thousand applications of the CCT in those environments and less than um, half a percent reported any significant injury. So it is a very safe, medically proven technique when applied properly, uh, obviously, and, and, and keeping your members up to date on their training in that technique as to how to apply it properly. Um, so, and, you know, the last 25 to 30 years, actually, you'd almost say since the evolution of policing, uh, the public has asked for us to be able to do it safer, mm-hmm. right? You, without resorting to lethal force. So you end up with, um, in today's modern age of policing, obviously the CEW conducted entry weapon, OC spray, uh, the baton, and even probably in my lifetime, you've seen the duty belt go from a pistol and uh, revolver cartridges to now the pistol and magazines and the baton, and the OC spray, and the CEW, and, 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 because we've been moving to options away from lethal force and fisticuffs. Yeah. Because, you know, fights are bloody, Mm -hmm. and fights are ugly. Police officers get hurt. Members of the public that we're trying to arrest get hurt. Uh, And, you know, with all the contagions out there, I think we want to keep our members safe. We want to keep the public safe. So you don't want to resort to that physical, real close quarters interaction. And how can we spread that time and distance? So hence why you get to the discussion on tear gas Mm -hmm. and the discussion on sponge tip rounds, or as the PMO or prime minister was terming it, rubber bullets, which we don't use. The RCMP doesn't use rubber bullets. What we do use are 40 millimeter uh, extended range impact weapons, uh, sponge tip rounds. But bullet, bullet and, sounds better. <laughs> oh, bullet sounds better. Bullet sounds more violent for sure. Yeah. And, and really, okay, you can call them a sponge tip bullet, but it's not a rubber bullet, right? A rubber bullet is a different weapon. It's a different specialty munition. It is commonly used in the States. Um, and they will. Uh, they will kill and they will impact and break the skin. Whereas the sponge tip round, the big 40 millimeter is designed not to, uh, based on the training and how it's applied and all that great stuff. They're fairly large. So, so, you know, correcting that verbiage, um, and providing, you know, subject matter expertise. Like I think we had, uh, one of our emergency response team members do a video. Uh, we had one of our trainers. Uh, at Chilliwack, the Pacific Region Training Center, explain the carotid control technique and demonstrate it in a video, as well as explain where it became useful for her in a specific circumstance where it was uh, the only option available to her. Um, And then, obviously, tear gas, again, something 
to explain to the politicians is that tear gas in Canada is never used on a lawful or peaceful assembly. It's just mm-hmm. not. Um, and it is a very controlled uh, specialty munition in the RCMP, at least in our context, can only be deployed by an incident commander in a riot or an unlawful assembly. Uh, and there are very strict parameters upon how they can deploy that. Uh, you know, you must give a safe exit route for people to go to. The whole idea is to move a crowd to a certain direction where you can end the unlawful assembly or the riot um, that is occurring. And the best, most recent example is the Stanley Cup riots in Vancouver, mm-hmm. where it was quite effectively used to move people out of the downtown core uh, and away from certain locations. So I think educating the public, educating our elected officials, is hopefully going to have an impact on uh, how they make decisions down the road. Well, when this these letters start coming down, the direction starts coming down, uh, I would imagine maybe one of the first questions is why this change and why now, but also why these three specific uh, intervention methods? Have they ever said why they picked these three of all things? I, I, I don't know, you know, and I think um, I think there's a lot of focus on um, the minority voices speaking up about um, policing, uh, and perhaps there's greater weight given to um, certain voices in Canada than those who are the expert voices. You know, if 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 I listen to the cancer patient tell me what they want as treatment versus the actual oncologist's mm-hmm. recommendations as to what they should have as treatment, you know, our cancer treatment in Canada might be completely different today Mm -hmm. um, because we're listening to the patient who thinks that one thing is best for them uh, versus the scientists that can back up what they're recommending as far as the best treatment. And I think that's a little bit of where we are uh, in public policy debates is minority voices should have a say in everything that we do but should it be the guiding say? Well, and the person that's having that that conversation with them, uh, instead of looking at it from maybe political motivations, says, okay, I get what you're saying and you want this. Here are the stats. Here are the numbers. Uh, I've had a few guests on since the last time we talked, but we've talked quite a bit about things like bail reform. And it, uh, the numbers that never get put out there, it says, you know, uh, this group is dealt with more by police. This group has more, a uh, specific group has more use of force against them. But they don't say, uh, I guess on two sides of things, who calls us and and what communities do we go to the most? So that's one of the aspects that those stats aren't put out there. Um, and they don't say like, when these people get released, where do you think they go? They go back to that community. You know, uh, a lot of bad guys that, you know, whether people realize it or not, they go back to mom and dad because they usually don't have another place to go. So they're back in the same community, just reoffending against the exact same people. So obviously those numbers will be high. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, we've um, um, put forth a lot of positions and 
and papers at different government levels um, uh, talking about exactly that. You know, so overrepresentation in our prison system or overrepresentation in the policing world for different communities is not so much a policing problem, but really it's a community problem because, you know, if someone is in a provincial institution and they're getting released in a week, what's the plan for vocational training to make them a happy, healthy, productive member of the community to be able to have a job, afford some rent, and and actually go to work? Is there a plan? Does the province fund it? Does the community fund it? Do the feds fund it? And, you know, to the same extent, uh, federal corrections, right? You know what statutory release is, when they're going to be coming out. So what's the plan to to uh, keep someone off whatever the addictive substance they may have uh, to reinsert them into community? To we, All these things take money versus just, out you go, good luck, have a nice day. Mm-hmm. And then back in tomorrow after robbing a bank. Um, so, and unfortunately, our marginalized communities are the ones who are overrepresented, mostly because they are overlooked by the social safety network in Canada. And that's uh, where the police respond to time and time again, because the system has failed them. Yeah, well, the other thing that I was kind of wondering, um, maybe we'll... Uh, I'm trying to think how to word this, but how much influence or do the, does the minister get direct input in saying like the RCMP can use specific type of force uh, or intervention methods? So when he sends the, the letters down, um, and I think this is kind of the discussion that's coming up in Nova Scotia, like how much influence does the federal government have on what the RCMP is doing? Is there enough separation if they say don't use these uh, uh, these intervention options, does the RCMP have to listen? Or are they kind of like, I can take it under advisement, but we see the benefit to these things. The stats say one thing. Um, so we're going to stick with them. Is is that possible? I think it is. And, and I think this is, you, uh, you, you, you did mention it, you know, with respect to Nova Scotia, with respect to what's happening in uh, the Public Order Emergency Commission. Uh, you know, the commissioner, the deputy commissioners, commanding officers across the country in different divisions have clearly said time and time and time again that even though the commissioner is a deputy minister, it's really clear that the RCMP itself has operational independence from the government of Canada and public safety. Um, so... Here we are talking about three operational things and operational decisions. Uh, we're actually going through a selection right now for body-worn cameras, which is an operational decision, uh, a new pistol replacement project, which is on the way again, an operational decision. So they do follow the government of Canada's procurement processes for those two. But in the end, selection of a vendor, selection of whether it's an, I don't know, axon Body worn camera or 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 uh, a six hour pistol remains with the RCMP. So I've got to think the use of force framework, which is based on subject matter expertise within the RCMP and the global policing community, are all operational decisions. So I would hope that 
the uh, organization itself would push back and say, well, thank you very much. Um, A, we don't use chokeholds. Yeah. <laughs> we don't use neck restraint. Um, tear gas is for riots only, and we don't reuse rubber bullets. So there, we've complied with your mandate letter. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> to know, be honest. Not, it, it's like, well, we somehow had the foresight, and we already knew you were going to ask this from 30 years ago, so we're done. <laughs> One of the things that you're talking about, though, with, with the body-worn cameras, uh, and I know this debate comes up here uh, quite a bit. Um, usually it's, it boils down to a bit of a funding issue, from what I understand. Um, but it looks like the RCMP is going to go ahead with them. And it's one of the articles I was reading said that they're going to be starting in 2022. Do you know where that program is and kind of the extent of it uh, as we speak? Uh, yeah, I can. I mean, as far as I know, so so there's no issue with funding. Um, you know, we managed to, and the RCMP actually managed, we worked together with public safety to advocate for body-worn cameras back in June 2020. Um, and in November 2020, the government allotted, I think, $265 million or whatever it is. Um, but that's, that's initial purchase as well as the first three years of data usage and monitoring all across the country. And they're looking at a deployment of, I think, uh, thirteen to 15,000 mm-hmm. across Canada. The uh, request for proposal went out. Uh, there are two finalists. Uh, I'm not sure who they are right now. And the RCMP is making that selection as to which vendor they're going to go with. Um, ultimately, the phased deployment is supposed to start in December this year uh, with Alberta, uh, Nova Scotia, and Nunavut being the first three provinces to get them. And then in 2023, the rest of the country would slowly be phased into body-worn cameras. One of the things I was thinking with those was, um, uh, like I just remember from being with the Mounties, we had the uh, the dash cams. And those are, uh, from my own experience, I'm sure everybody's got a different story or experience with them, but from my own, I actually liked them. And I had uh, used a ton of video as evidence in court. Um, a lot of it speaks for itself because when you go to court, uh, I'll say the accused makes up all kinds of stories. Uh, and uh, in case people didn't realize, lots of people lie in court that they can say almost whatever they want and defense says whatever they want. But um, the video speaks for itself. And one of the things I was kind of thinking was if if you get something on a body-worn camera and it's always about police accountability, I think these cameras would be a good idea because they're going to hold the public accountable. But with that being said, uh, if something occurs in a public space, that should be allowed to be put out there and there's no privacy. It's like, well, you were doing this in a public space and hundreds if not thousands of people could have been standing there and seen you acting this way, calling the cops this name, throwing something at the cops, just being a, uh, a disturbance uh, uh, by yourself. I think that... Uh, maybe an idea should be, okay, if we're going to have these, this is uh, full, frank, and fair. It's going to be put out there, and your face will be on the news. Yeah, I don't know if we'll get there. Um, obviously, you know, uh, different legislation covers off the RCMP and, and release of information. There's obviously Privacy Act concerns, and 
And, and one of the challenges uh, with respect to body-worn cameras within the RCMP is, is okay, retention, all that great stuff. You're going to keep the footage for however long. However, if you're going to court with something, that footage then has to be scrubbed, right, for innocent bystanders' faces and all of those things, kids and all that great stuff. So it was, it was a bit of a piece of work mm-hmm. to, and it's still in development about how much back-end work is actually required for, you know, 13,000 members across the country using cameras and all of that footage that might be required for some form of disclosure. And then, God forbid, someone does an access to information because <laughs> then you're creating this entire new unit um, just to go through uh, video footage. Mm-hmm. So, But I do agree with you. Um, you know, police services across Canada can be better uh, with... And I hate to say it, it's going to sound bad, but with publicly shaming the naysayers, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and, and it's not about shaming, it's about correcting the record. Yep. Um, you know, uh, the 12 second cell phone clip versus the uh, 55 second body worn camera clip, right? And those, and, you know, be responding to the 12 second cell phone clip that shows the worst of an interaction and actually showing the 55 second body worn camera clip that gives context and shows the best of the interaction. Um, so I think we globally can do better. Um, and, and yeah, it will, um, improve the narrative, I think around policing and, um, um, showing that our members, regardless of strife across the country, do an excellent job um, day in and day out um, serving their communities. Yeah, and, and in one of uh, the uh, the NPF's calls to action here, um, just going back to the point I just made about you know holding people accountable for their own actions, uh, you have in here like pre- preliminary evidence in other police jurisdictions in Canada shows that body worn cameras may alter police actions, but more importantly civilians may also act less aggressively towards officers when they're aware they are being filmed uh, because the camera is always in their hand and pointing at you, but you can't tell which of the 20 voices in the background is the person holding the camera or who's acting what way in the background. So I think it, um, some of the stuff that people are asking for, it's like, it, it's a, a, maybe it's a good change or a welcome change, but you got to realize like you're going to be held accountable too. Um, one of the things I did want to get onto was just the training because you have a, a section in the uh, letter here as well in the NPF's position, just about training around the use of force in the IMIM model. Um, so all our CMP officers recertify on the, the model yearly, if I'm correct. Uh, well, all... RCMP members go through their annual firearms qualification annually, and with that becomes a bit of a refresher on the IMIM, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, de-escalation, uh, stop police, uh, um, you know, do you pull the trigger or not pull the trigger, as well as your lethal force and grievous bodily harm uh, considerations. The actual IMIM and the use of force continuum 
is done in more detail every three years with our operational skills training or operational skills maintenance, depending which side of the country you're on, uh, is where they go through baton. They go through OC spray, uh, recertify on CEW. Uh, they'll go through physical hand hard, empty hand soft, all of that great stuff. Uh, and the carotid control technique and annual firearms qualification also is in there. And IARD as a supplemental uh, carbine, all of that great stuff is done every three years. Um, and they go through the full model. And, uh, I know some of the criticisms of policing in general is they want everybody to do de-escalation, more de-escalation. But, uh, when I'm looking at the IMIM model here, I'm looking at a picture right now, uh, crisis intervention and de-escalation is in every single step. Yep. And then there's also verbal and nonverbal communication in every single step. So it's in there. It's built in. It is built in. And, you know, we've been, um, you know, from the RCMP members' perspective, we've been uh, blowing this horn um, a lot over the last uh, three to four years. You know, the membership of the RCMP that responds to almost uh, three million calls on average per year. Uh, And any use of force. So that's me slapping a suspect that's empty hand soft all the way up to discharging a firearm, right? Mm-hmm. Death or grievous bodily harm. Any use of force represents one-tenth of one percent of those three million calls. So that tells me, and I, I mean, I'm biased and I'm a cop and I understand the I am, I am, but that tells me that our members across Canada are pretty damn good at crisis intervention and de-escalation and resolving things peacefully when 99.9% of the calls you go to are resolved that way. Mm-hmm. So can we get it better? Should we strive for 100%? Yes, we should. Uh, and should governments across the country um, look at improving verbal de-escalation and negotiation and skills for their police officers on the front line? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um, But should that come at the expense of taking away other options that might be needed, which could put the public or the member themselves at risk? I think that that should be a hard no. Well, and even the number of, uh, you know, that one-tenth of one percent, how many of those people are repeat offenders? So even if I have 4,000 uses of force in a year, maybe 2,000 of those are with the same person. So it's actually not 4,000 individual uh, citizens. So it's, it, it's an even smaller number than that. It is. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think most police officers off the country, you know, or across the country will, will, will know if you're going to deal with person X and you dealt with person X twice last week and you're dealing with them for the third time this week and person X might be a fighter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we might be getting into a scrap. I'm going to be thinking about how I'm going to do this and there might be some, some use for So yeah, you might be dealing with the same person 10 times uh, in a year and having some kind of a use of force incident. Um, so yeah, you, that number might be even smaller. You know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, 9100 of one percent, yeah. <laughs> like I don't know how you shrink that number even small. Like one tenth of one percent over three million calls to me is a pretty damn impressive number. Uh, you know, is it ninety nine point nine eight 
uh, and we're really even close to 100% of, uh, you know, in the individual use of force incidents. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think broadly speaking, police in Canada uh, do a fantastic job um, de-escalating and resolving incidents without incident. Uh, and, and, and it's unfortunate that, you know, different politicians and different governments seem to capitalize or try to capitalize on that one tenth. Well, and um, yeah, it always seems like there's like a, we're shooting for this zero, like it's the utopian idea and it's unrealistic. We're dealing with people and people make bad decisions. People make uh, stupid decisions. There are all kinds of things going on in every individual's life that is going to affect them on the day to day. And it's sometimes people break and do something that's against the law uh, or just not accepted by society. Then it's to a point where a police officer has to deal with them. So I think some of the, the, the rhetoric when it's like, you know, we, you know, one is too many. Well, that, that's an unrealistic statement. So we have to deal with facts and truth and what actually occurs out there. Um, it would just be nice to see some more truth around things is kind of where I'm getting to. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, most police officers would agree with you. I would agree with you. You know, obviously, you know, cops have sworn an oath and, and, uh, uh, and they like to be treated fairly and honestly. And I think um, with the politicization of policing across different jurisdictions in Canada, you know, whether it's from a municipality's move to defund uh, or this particular mandate letter issue about less lethal intervention options. Um, I think it's disheartening to, uh, to cops to sit back and say, you know, you're an MLA, you're an MP, you know, uh, maybe come out for a ride along and see what life is really like, and then have an informed opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting in Europe, obviously they, they're, they're, they just released a survey and I have to, I have to finish reading it, but about a, yesterday, Eurocop, um, which is an association that represents a whole bunch of European police officers, um, you know, released a poll that almost 85% of their members support a rearming initiative uh, for police officers across Europe. Just because of the challenges they are seeing with, you know, knives and the bad guys mm-hmm. having access to firearms and, you know, terrorist activities and, and, the, and the fears that those members are placed in. So it's, it's fascinating that across the pond, uh, they're actually looking at increasing use of lethal use of force options. Um, and over here, we're looking at eliminating less lethal, which could probably lead to an increase in the use of lethal. Well, and, and uh, to be completely honest, the bad guys know what they can get away with. They know what tools we carry and they know our tactics. They get disclosure. Uh, so when they know they can do um, all these things that kind of fall in the middle of the use of force options, they know, you know, well, if I start complying at this point, this person's not going to be allowed to do this to me. So the, the whole thing gets kind of weaponized against us. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the more tools, the better. Uh, I think it's at a point where like, I, I can't even fit all the options on my duty belt. Um, like unless you got like a 60 inch waist, you can't fit most of the tools on there now. But 
um, you know, the more options, the better. And I think one of the things um, with the the rebuttal that you guys have put together that I've been reading is it's nice to see a bit of an offensive strategy because especially over the last couple of years, we, uh, to a degree, there I think it was being held accountable. But now uh, I think it's to a point where police are just getting attacked. You certainly see it in the US. It's not as, I'll say, violent toward cops up here, but it is getting to that point. There are more uses of force, or sorry, more assaults against police. Um, uh, you know, we just don't get shot at as much, but we do. Uh, but we get it from all levels, right? We get it from the public. Uh, we get it from the politicians. We get it from all the special interest groups. We get it from the media. So it's at, at what point is it no longer being held accountable and instead we're just being attacked for doing a job that we were hired to, hired to do to protect these very people? Um, it's, it's such a weird situation to kind of be in the middle of. Uh, I, I agree with you. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, over the past number of decades, I don't think police associations or police leadership of any stripe have done a very good job um, explaining the challenges policing face, uh, explaining the assaults on police officers, advertising the community engagement that our cops do on a day-to-day basis, uh, advertising use of force and explaining what it means. Um, and, and, you know, really getting the community involved to support police in Canada, because we have kind of let it slide to a point where Canadians are heavily influenced by U.S. media, you know? Yeah. You see, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was news yesterday about the tragedy in uh, Los Angeles about their sheriff's cadet Mm -hmm. out on a run, um, you know? Should something similar happen in Canada, is that going to be news in L.A.? Most probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might filter down, but it wouldn't be headline news, right? So that stuff, the school shootings that happen in the States, they're headline news on CBC, CTV, Global. You know, we have, there was a lockdown the other day in Gatineau, Quebec, with a kid with a gun. Uh, did that make its way down to Messina, New York? As headline is probably not. So we're heavily influenced by U.S. media. Yeah. And I think what they see is that movement about cops being bad because, uh, and it filters up. So in order to go, as you mentioned, more on the offensive, I don't think it's an offensive. I think it's more we need to bring the reasonable Canadian back to ground mm-hmm. uh, because there is there is widespread support for policing in Canada. Um, it's actually on the rise and has been since 2020. Um, so it's really just saying, hey, you know what? We're people too. We signed up to serve. This is some of the stuff we do. There's lots of oversight. There's lots of civilian oversight. We could get charged criminally if we have a bad day. Um, and, you know, that's the reason we have these authorities in the criminal code, you know, section 25, et cetera, um, to use force. And we use it very, very sparingly because we're very, very good in Canada at talking people out of um, uh, forcing us to use force. So I think there's, there's, there's valid points there and, and there's valid discussions there. And I think the, 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 the debate today 
really is forcing police leadership and police associations to get better mm-hmm. uh, at how they publicly uh, defend their members or defend their service or talk about the future and the initiatives that are going to be underway. Well, that's part of the reason why we got the podcast. So we're trying to get more people on to talk about all kinds of things uh, and, you know, get people to have the critical conversations. You know, it's not just about the two-line Twitter headline and screaming and shouting. So, uh, yeah. Do you, Is there anything you think we missed on this topic? Is there anything else uh, maybe we should cover? Well, no. I And honestly, I don't know when anything is going to materialize about this um, less lethal intervention options thing. Uh, you know, we heard about it in May. It took us a while to do some research uh, and obviously do the videos and get some stats and stuff. So we didn't release our uh, our final version until November, first week of November. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the RCMP has a copy. Uh, we sent it to the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, sent it to the Canadian Police Association. Hopefully all different chiefs and all different associations will, you know, either come out and support in whole, in part, or similarly, or just ignore it. That's fine. If it's not an issue for them. Um, and, uh, and, and really hopefully everybody can get on the similar, uh, perspective. So I don't know when, if, um, there's going to be compliance to that, but the, the fear obviously is if it happens with the RCMP, it's not long before the OPP will follow suit and then the certes Quebec. And then ultimately what happens in Toronto will filter out to the rest of the country. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's the worry. Yeah, well, I guess we'll have to see and hope, uh, you know, keep putting up the good fight and uh, uh, helping out. You know, you guys uh, definitely have, I would say, a lot more resources than a lot of the local associations when it comes to doing some of this research and, and finding out those stats. I think that's one thing we're not the greatest at is keeping stats, uh, at least a whole wraparound of, you know, a situation. We kind of just collect, you know, hey, this use of force was used and um, we don't look at, you know, well, how many times have we dealt with the person who called us? Why are we here? What were the what were the behaviors of the person being dealt with that dictated that response? So, um, yeah, no, we appreciate uh, uh, all the effort you're putting in. Yeah, we're getting there. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, hopefully I, uh, I'll get the chance to see Mike again. Uh, uh, before the end of the year, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, so say hi to him for me. Will do. Uh, and and that's part of the uh, the idea is you know we want to work in partnership with the CPA and other uh, associations, and uh, ultimately you know have that united front uh, to improve the lives of all costs in Canada. So great. Well, if you could just hang on the line a second, and I'll uh, sure. just stop the recording. <laughs> 